0: Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak to Andrew Van Dam from the Washington Post about why people in the South tend to have pretty shitty credit scores relative to to real America. (laughs) Real Americans have better credit scores than those Southerners. Um, Then we'll be joined by Professor Jennifer Mercia. She teaches at Texas and A&M in the Department of Media and Communications. And we're going to talk to her about how to fight back against fascism by, as she puts it, weirdifying it. Weirdify fascism. But first, it's been a while since we covered the war in Ukraine. Of course, I'm recording this just before the one-year anniversary, and we will do a segment on it. We should probably do a segment on it maybe next week. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of obsessed with it. There are some memes on social media. There are some people who are claimed, claiming that... Um, like, why do you care so much about Ukraine and you don't care about this or that? You don't care about the civil war in Yemen. And there are all sorts of obvious answers to that that bad faith question, right? Including the fact that, yes, it's a war between majority white Christian European countries. Yeah, I get that. Um, that's the answer that they're looking for. But it's a it's a bad faith question also because we have not seen an all-out interstate war by... Uh, between industrialized developed countries with modern military since World War II. That's the last time we've seen that. And you can argue, well, you know, you can argue about the Korean War or whatever, but basically to have two countries that are highly uh, developed industrial countries, uh, it's been uh, several generations that's not to say that there hasn't been haven't been you know horrific wars or large-scale wars, but um, most of them have been civil wars. and And none of them, and you know none of them have been fought in cities that look like ours. That's normal. Anyway, support for Ukraine still enjoys broad bipartisan support among Americans. Do not believe some of these like pundits who say that it's like collapsing, it's not collapsing. Uh, It is slipping on the right, um, but it it remains strong and bipartisan in Congress where it matters uh, and where only a a handful of uh, wingnut lawmakers are acting like useful idiots for the Kremlin and demanding that we cut the Ukrainians loss loose, uh, which would clearly lead to their defeat. And that small group, of course, includes the worst lunatics in Congress, like you know Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andy Biggs, and um, it's pretty wild to see them perfectly echo Russian propaganda. They blame us for escalating, they blame us for forcing Putin into the war, not all of them, but many of them um, by you know, expanding NATO and encroaching on his, his territory, which is nonsense. We've NATO has been at the border of Russia since shortly after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, they call it a, a proxy war. And by the way, I've seen some well-intentioned people who tend to be like grounded in reality also suggest that Ukraine is fighting a U.S. proxy war. And this is a ludicrous proposition. It was only a year ago that the Biden administration made a, a number of very public moves to try to Deter Russia from launching its invasion. That invasion was guaranteed to drive up prices in a midterm election year in which Republicans were making inflation their central argument, right? Nothing good about this war. There's nothing good about this war for the administration. And since then, of course, we have consistently given the Ukrainians less than they've asked for in terms of weapons, right? We were prepared for them to lose in the beginning. There were a lot of people in in our foreign policy elites that expected that expected Kyiv to fall in a few days, just like a lot of people in Russian foreign policy elites thought that. And that's none of that is a proxy war. Um, anyway, some of these losers have tried to gaslight, I think is an appropriate term. Uh, Democrats and people on the broad left who support Ukraine by claiming that they, that the pro Russia caucus or the anti Ukraine caucus are now the anti war party. And that those of us urging continuing support to Ukraine are pro war. It's just they're trying to flip that script. And I have to say that this argument may sound somewhat reasonable. Two people who uh, don't pay much attention or don't understand the nature of this conflict. Um, But in reality, like urging a peace deal that gives Russia territory, it's seized by force, is actually the pro-war position. That's the pro-war position. Uh, Vladimir Putin has made it abundantly clear, consistently, including in his speeches this week, he gave two bigger speeches this week, that he sees himself as a figure whose destiny is to restore Russia to an imperial power. He wants to reunify the countries of the former Soviet Union, at least. He's very open about this. It's not a, you know, you don't have to read between the lines um and russian propaganda channels are also very clear about this project that they like putin also dream of restoring the maps of of not even the soviet union but Tsarist imperial russia at its peak you know again this isn't like cold war paranoia this is what they say and this is what people in countries from Poland to Estonia, to Estonia and Finland, elsewhere in the region, That this is what they say keeps them up at night, right? I mean, you have Finland and Sweden. They aren't abandoning 70 years of neutrality as a policy to join NATO for nothing. They're scared about this stuff. Estonia has basically given Ukraine its entire, not its entire, almost its entire military capacity. They've given them almost... Estonia is the biggest as a... Relative to the size of their economy and their military, Estonia is by far the biggest contributor to Ukraine. They've given as a share of their economy and their military much more than we have because they're terrified. Now, I believe that um, aside from those countries that have unofficial that have like been unofficial nato partners uh like sweden right and finland they've been training with with nato they have nato standard uh, weapons they use nato tactics etc aside from them the other countries in the region do not have anything approaching the military capacity of ukraine right they are not they are, they can, Russia could roll over them. So the domino theory that fueled the Cold War, that was flawed, right? It was really flawed. But it is actually pretty certain that a Russian victory here and now will lead to additional conflicts in, in Russia's neighborhood, in the Balkans. And a partial victory where Russia is left with, let's say, Crimea and the Donbass region will lead to a future war against Ukraine. We know that because that's what happened in 2014. Uh, the international community re- responded to Russia's seizures of this big chunk of Ukrainian ter- territory with condemnations, uh, with, uh, with tepid sanctions, and then they just let them have it. And then eight years later, Russia went and tried to take the rest of Ukraine. That's, I mean, it's pretty clear. So, Ukraine's goal in this war is not complicated. They're trying to defend and restore their sovereignty, obviously. But I think if you are actually opposed to war, it means that you have to support, even though it is deeply flawed, the rules based international system. It is a decreaser of war. It doesn't eliminate war. It has decreased the amount of especially interstate wars. And I think if you are opposed to war, the best outcome in this conflict or I should say for probably longer term would be revealing that Russia is in fact a middle power. It is not a great power. It cannot impose its will on its neighbors by force. It's a middle power. And I think that um, that would be good for Russia. I think it should be tending to its own interest. And if it were to accept being a middle power, if it were to accept being like France, it could really thrive, right? It's a bridge between Europe and Asia. If it were integrated, as opposed to being isolated, it could thrive. I mean, Russia has a lot going for it. Obviously, that would require new leadership, and it would also require a cultural shift. It would require a shift in elite opinion. probably isn't going to happen anytime soon. It's not going to happen if, you know, the the Ukrainians, quote-unquote, win this war. And And I think almost every expert agrees that it's probably not going to be finished on the battlefield, but as a long term process, I think that would have to start with a defeat, a Russian defeat in your Ukraine against a unified West it would have to start there. Right. And that's the result that would decrease the likelihood of future wars in the region. And it would also decrease more immediately future wars over territorial disputes between like Turkey and Greece and elsewhere. It would decrease the chances of a war breaking out over Taiwan. Russia's failure decreases the chance of other wars. And and letting Russia get away with its war of choice is the pro-war position. So I guess it's no wonder that it's embraced by so many fascist fuckwads. Anyway, on that note, let's uh, take a quick break and move right along. Stay tuned
1: the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. Put your hands up. Put your hands up.
0: Up in the club, just broke up, doing my own little thing. Decided to dip. Now you want a trip, cause another brother noticed me. I'm up on him. He's up I my tears for three good years.
1: No, you can't be mad at me. Cause if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Don't be mad when you see that he won't. Cause if you like it, then
0: you should have put a ring on
2: it.
0: Welcome back. I'm joined now by a data journalist, Andrew Van Dam. He's a very good one. He writes the Department of Data column for the Washington Post, and he had a really interesting column struck my eye last week. It's titled, Why Does the South Have Such Ugly Credit Scores? And listeners can check it out at WashingtonPost.com. And Andrew Van Dam joins us now to discuss it. Andrew, welcome to We've Got Issues.
1: Howdy. Thanks so much for having me. Thank
0: you for taking the time. So um, I hope listeners do find the piece because it has a excellent county level map that's worth, like if you operate visually, unfortunately, this is a podcast, but it's it's really interesting. And what you see is up in the kind of heartland of the Midwest, almost every county has good credit. The East has a few counties with poor credit, but overall, it's pretty good. Um, and again, these are averages we're speaking about. Uh, The West, both the coastal West and the mountain West are a a mix of counties with good and bad credit, but they have more good than bad, as does Florida. And then throughout the rest of the South, uh, what you see is that counties that don't have poor average credit ratings are actually few and far between. There's almost none of them. And that's the map. Andrew, before we get into the story, I just wonder how you came up with the idea for this piece. Where, where, do, where do these data come from? They're pretty interesting.
1: Right. So I started in the same place you did with the map. I was reading a fascinating study from researchers at the Federal Reserve, the IMF, uh, National University of Singapore, top tier folks who had uh, this massive data set of like 240 million uh, credit cards, because, you know, they're the Fed, they can work miracles. And so they were able to create this incredibly detailed map of credit scores in the US. And the study's point wasn't really this regional variation. But when you see this map, when I showed this map to anyone, one thing jumped out, which was that pattern you described earlier, why in the world would the South, uh, you know, even in crossing all sorts of uh, demographic boundaries and cities and rural and everything, why would the South have such low credit scores as a region?
0: Yeah. And that's really interesting because it, it is, the, it is the case that you see counties, you know, there's counties that are in cities, there's counties that are rural counties, you know, there's urban counties and suburban. It, it, it's, it's interesting how consistent it is. So um, most listeners know this, but I feel like I should just ask you, Just briefly, how how does having a a low credit score impact someone? Why why does this matter?
1: Oh, right, of course. And um, there are the basics, which is if you have a lower credit score, you're going to pay more to borrow money. You're going to pay a higher interest rate on your auto loan, your car loan, your student debt, whatever you have from a private lender or whatever. You're going to be paying higher rates. It's going to be harder for you to build wealth. It's going to be harder for you to uh, get a fixed rate mortgage, which will help protect you from inflation and a lot of other things. But beyond that, it can affect your uh, background checks, your access to um, even employment. All can come down to this, you know, one pesky little FICO or Vantage score. Yeah. And uh, so
0: it it causes a lot of trouble. We should, of course, keep in mind that Kids in the South are probably better protected from critical race theory and drag queens and Hunter Biden's laptop, so it may be worth it. I I don't know, but um, it's one of a number of such disparities, including the growing gap in life expectancy between not North and South, but blue and red states that we've discussed previously on the show. all right. So, Andrew, let's talk about some potential reasons for this gap. According to the Brookings Institution, the counties that voted for Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election accounted for 70 percent of GDP in America. And if you look at the states with the highest poverty rates, they're all in the South. All all, all of the 10 states with the highest poverty rates. So could it be that simple?
1: They're poorer Well, that was one of my first thoughts, too. And so I started splitting the data by income, by poverty, that kind of thing. And you find that, yes, there is a correlation. A higher income place is going to have a higher credit score. But uh, it doesn't explain the gap between the regions, because even among the highest income places, like if you look at equally high income places in the south and uh, in the north or the west or the um, midwest, you will see that the South has lower credit scores even after accounting for income, the same is in the lowest income places. The lowest income places outside the South have higher credit scores. That's fascinating. So uh, it can't just be an income issue.
0: All right. So if income isn't the biggest factor, I, you have to wonder then if it's racial disparities. A very disproportionate share, I don't know, it's very disproportionate. I don't think very disproportionate is actually a a coherent way a disproportionate share like very pregnant right like either you're disproportionate or you're not (laughs) a a wildly disparate let's say a wildly disproportionate share a disproportionate share of african americans live in those southern states and with ethnicity with the black white uh, you see a bigger gap in in wealth uh in people's net worth accumulated with net worth than you see with income so if you take a white family uh, several several years back, uh, Dalton Conley did a study that found that white families at the poverty line had net worths of ten to $15,000 on average. Black families at the same income level had negative net worths. They owed more than the value of what they owned. And this was the accumulation of 400 years of, of mostly legal uh, institutional racism. So... Can that explain it? like is the could the disproportionate amount of African Americans in the in the South explain
1: that? Right, and that was one of my early thoughts, too, because yes, uh, the southern black population has been denied access to a lot of these wealth building things and a lot of these uh, what we call human capital building uh, things, like uh, elite institutions of higher learning, that kind of thing. and that, of course would um reduce your education and other factors which are as we said correlated with credit scores so we wondered is it the large black population in the south but the uh blackest population in the south the blackest areas of the south yes they have uh very low credit scores but the whitest areas of the south they also have very low credit scores uh. <laughs> that's right across the racial continuum and so yes um that is part of the issue um but uh, that the black population does tend to have lower credit scores and is concentrated in the South, but it can't possibly be the defining factor if even the whitest areas of the South have these low credit scores. All right. So in the, in the piece you you write that,
0: that these were the things that you looked at and, and when they didn't offer a satisfying explanation, and I should point out just as an aside that almost every complicated thing has multiple factors contributing to it. Okay. So None of these things um, were satisfying as a primary factor or explanatory factor. So you were kind of stumped until you reached out to someone who knew
1: exactly what the most likely answer is. Tell, Tell me about that. Oh, right. So I had been showing this dang map to everyone I ran into in the office. I am probably the most boring human on earth. i you walk on my desk and I'll be like, why are credit scores so low in the South? Please tell me.
0: I think that's true of all
1: data journalists, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly. Absolutely. I'm just uh, living up to my reputation there. Okay. And uh, one of our new employees, Luis Melgar, took a look at that and he's like, you know what? you should call Brino Braga at the Urban Institute. He has been working with this credit score data for years. He has access to extremely detailed reports that will tell you you know, what type of debt people have that he can compare over time and all these other things. So I reach out to Brino, or Dr. Braga, as uh, I would prefer to call him at least, and within, it, within seconds, he was like, it's got to be medical debt. That is um, the k- kind of debt that weighs most on credit scores. It is hugely disproportionate in the South. And so I think that's the explanation.
0: Ha, ah, medical
1: debt. God damn,
0: America <laughs> is such a crazy country. Okay, so we know that people in redder states lead shorter lives, but they also tend to be sicker. And a big part of that is cultural, right? I once I once heard this presentation by a cardiologist from South Carolina. It was It was at a medical conference. Long story why I was there listening to a conference. But anyway, um, and he began his presentation by saying, I come from a place where we deep fry our vegetables, right? (laughs) So if you look at, um, just as I mentioned that all 10 of the states with the highest poverty rates are in the South, all 10 of the states with the highest obesity rates are in the South. Is it just that they're sicker?
1: That is a large part of it, that uh, people in the South tend to have more chronic health conditions, which are, of course, the kind of thing that are going to put you afoul of uh, your hospital billing department, get you uh, past due medical debt, and show up on your credit report. But... But, uh, There's another but here.
2: Yeah, (laughs) there is.
1: And that is, you look at this map of chronic health conditions, right? And it is largely the South, but it's not just the South. You see in the upper Midwest, sort of the Great Lakes Rust Belt Let's region, call it the cheese
0: it. region, the cheese. Yes, exactly. Region. The
1: cheese belt. The National <laughs> <Canadian> <laughs> Cheese Belt is uh, <laughs> it also obviously struggles with chronic uh, health conditions. I can, you know, neither confirm nor deny its relationship with aforementioned cheese. Yes, I know. But uh (laughs) the brats are part of it it. definitely the brats are part of it (laughs) doubtless (laughs) and so you wonder well it can't just be health conditions if these great lakes rust belt cheese belt states are also struggling with these chronic health conditions but they tend to have very good credit scores it's got to be uh something else there all right so what is it all right so (laughs) The other issue is, of course, that uh, chronic health conditions don't immediately lead to medical debt. There's another step in there. It's insurance. Uh, If you have good coverage, this chronic health condition may not end up being financial disaster for you. If you have uh, not so good insurance, that's when uh, trouble starts rising. And uh, as I'm sure your uh, listeners are familiar with, a lot of southern states have some of the lowest in, uh, insurance, health insurance coverage rates of the entire country.
0: There you have it. It's the insurance. And how does um, Medicare, Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act, uh, how does that, that map correlate with the map that we talked about at the, in the beginning?
1: Right. It's very similar because of, I believe, the 11 states who still haven't expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Eight of them are in the American South. And all of those states, if you look at an insurance map, you can pick them out pretty dang easily. It becomes pretty obvious that the states uh, with the lowest insurance rates are the ones that did not expand Medicaid, and that, uh, of course, as a result, ended up with locals with higher levels of medical debt. So, you know, numerous studies have shown that in states that didn't expand medi- Medicaid, uh, there was a rapid rise in medical debt over those years. And if you look at the three states that
0: didn't expand Medicaid and are not in the South, they also have higher, based on the map, they seem to have higher um, levels of of uh, counties that have bad credit. This is all kind of consistent with the red blue grap- gap in mortality rates, a, a big part of that, according to researchers is a result of not only culture, but conservative policies. They look specifically at environmental policies, at gun safety policies, labor policies, including like workers comp and stuff like that as significant factors, as well as taxes on tobacco. That was another one that they found was a big cause of, or correlation, at least we should say, of this growing gap in life expectancy between left, and right states. At this point, 11 states have not yet expanded Medicaid. Uh, A couple of them are in the works. And I should point out that in those states, uh, red states mostly that expanded via referendum, I think they're all actually red states that have expanded via referendum as opposed to their legislatures expanding it. Um, They have in some cases kind of sabotaged the program. Missouri, for example, expanded in 2020 via referendum, but because the state, what they did is they put no money into publicizing it and then they made the application process a nightmare. So almost nobody who was eligible signed up in the first year and outside groups have kind of of come in and tried to help. Since then, we can expect something similar in North Dakota, which just expanded via referendum when. Voters forced issue, and I would just have everybody keep in mind that Medicaid was enacted in 1965, and Arizona was the last late state to implement it in when 1982. So that was 17 years, and maybe we'll have a 50 state expansion of Medicaid by 2027, 17 years after Obamacare was passed. But I doubt it because our um, our red states have become a lot more extreme. Andrew Van Dam, I believe we are about out of time. I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Oh, yeah. Thank you for taking the time to ask me questions. It was all sorts of fun. <laughs>
0: Stay tuned, folks. We're going to take a quick break
1: and come right back. Shutting down, good Lord. Baby, got him open all over town. Strictly you don't play around. Cover much ground. Got game by the town. Getting paid is a forte, each and every day, to play away. I can't get her out of my mind. I think about the girl all the time. East side to the west side, pushing bad rides, right. it's no surprise. She's got tricks in the stash, stacking up the cash fast when it comes to the gas. By no means, average, as always, she's got to have it. Baby, you're a perfect ten. I want to get in. Can I get down so I can? Win? I like the way you work
2: here. No I got to bag it up. I like the way you work here. I got to no bag it up. I like the way you
1: work here. I got to bag it up. She's got class and so.
0: Welcome back. Regular listeners know that I try to walk a tightrope on this show. I want very much for you to understand how bad things have gotten after the election of a a black guy with a funny name and with the emergence of Trump, who kind of changed the permission structure uh, on the right in America in such a way that they became comfortable expressing their hostility towards people of color, foreign born uh, sexual minorities, um, and also Uh, Also comfortable expressing what some political scientists refer to as hostile sexism out loud, in public, and also really organizing around those things. At the same time, we struggle to not demoralize our listeners, right? I don't want people to think, oh my God, it's Topeless, the fascists have won, right? They've uh, packed the court, they've hectored the legacy media into whitewashing their extremism. Um, I don't want people to think that because they haven't won and we can find all sorts of places where uh, the the good guys are winning. And a question that I get pretty often or that I did get before I got off of Twitter anyway. Uh, And by the way, I'm going to set up an email address for the show at some point, which I should have done long ago, but I get comments on Twitter. So blah, blah, blah. Anyway, a question that I get all the time is, what can we do? How do we push back on this growing craziness we see? Uh, on the American right every day. And um, my next guest has, has thought a lot about that question. Uh, Jennifer Murcia is a professor of communication and journalism at Texas A&M. And she has written a piece for Resolute Square that caught my eye. It's titled, How to Save Democracy, Weirdify Fascism. Uh, and you can check that out at um, ResoluteSquare.com. Professor Murcia, welcome to We've Got Issues.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for taking the time. Um, Before we get into that, into what we mean by weirdifying fascism, I want to talk a little bit about how you define the term and also the way that uh, that, that fascists can tend to gain and hold power. I'm one of those people who's not hesitant to call fascists by their name, and I, I don't think a movement has to be, you know, perfectly mirror Italy or Germany or Spain and the 1930s to be a fascist movement Um, you write that and I quote fascists use language to undermine democracy and control our political discourse can you unpack that how do they do that
2: oh yeah Um, I mean, they're obsessed with it, frankly. (laughs) Um, It's really, it's really, there's an interesting history of it. Um, I mean, if you have read Mein Kampf from Hitler, you know that so much of that book is essentially a propaganda manual, um, right? He provides content for what to say. But then he also has explicit instructions for how to, you know, win information wars, how to um organized rallies, how to win arguments, um, you know, how to use symbols, how to use violence in strategic ways. Like it's all very much a part of how he understood his project, um, both in that book and um how he rose to power. Um, and, and he was trained as a propagandist during World War I, um, which is, you know, when propaganda really became a mass uh, media phenomenon. Um, And so uh, since Hitler, folks have um, definitely tried to use those same kinds of strategies, so using communication as a weapon. Um, And they do that to normalize fascist ideas or autocratic ideas, um, as well as to disrupt uh, democracy itself. So um, I take a cue from uh, John Dewey, who in 1939 wrote that democracy is a way of life. It's a way of thinking, a way of associating, and a way of communicating. Um, and just like democracy is a way of life, so is fascism. And so fascism is a way of communicating and thinking and associating. And so um, fascists try to normalize fascism. Um, and they do that through really specific strategies, um, you know, there's lots of analysis of pr- how propaganda works, um, and and there's a million strategies, so I can't tell you all of them right now. But, right. Um, you know, they're very strategic about how they do it. It's all about moving the overton window. It's about um, normalizing their ideas, um, frame warfare, information warfare, conspiracy. Um, Those are all strategies that are used um, specifically by fascists. They're fascist strategies. They're not democratic communication strategies. And um, so, yeah, so they're really good at it. They know what they're doing.
0: (laughs) And at the end of the day, the goal is to make you fearful so that they can say, we're going to come in and save you. We're going to come in and protect you. Um, I just want to read this paragraph from your piece. I think it's so important um, and also timely, right? Uh, let me quote you fascists can control access to the means of communication the channels apps algorithms as well as use rhetorical tricks like conspiracy theory or outrage bait not only do fascists use scary fear appeals but they use communication itself as a weapon their information warfare strategies are designed to frame normalize and move the overton window towards fashion thought fascist thought actions and policies. And I, I want listeners to just think about this for a second, right? We are at a moment, you have Elon Musk has bought Twitter for 20 billion more than it's worth. And he is gaming the algorithms to put um, people, you know, cat turd and his own tweets above everybody else's. You have Fox News stoking outrage constantly about all sorts of meaningless issues designed to make uh, normal People, right, normal, like white people, feel fearful and angry, and you have a massive embrace of conspiracy theories, all of which share the common theme that they, that those other people, a collection of people who represent the other, are coming to get you and to take away your your culture and your status and maybe put you in prison Maybe murder you. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. And the answer of all of this is to stop voter fraud. It's to enact new barriers to voting. It's to control the courts. It's to suppress democracy. That's the answer that they propose for these these problems. Um, and one of the things, like, people don't understand the power of outrage bait, which is a great term. Um, if you look at Facebook's top stories every day, It's dominated by these like dramatic headlines from right-wing sites, and they've really created this outrage bait, I don't know, currency uh, on social media. So Professor, um, what do you mean when you talk about weirdifying fascism and how are some of the ways that we can do that?
2: Yeah, I mean, so it's um, it's really important to understand how essentially anti-democratic all of these strategies are, right? So outrage bait is a great example, um, or conspiracy. They sort of work in similar ways, which is that they take advantage of our innate cognitive, emotional, and social weaknesses. They're strategies that are designed to make us essentially automatons, right? If we see outrage um, on Facebook, like you say, or on Twitter, We are seven times more likely to engage with that content. We retweet um, or recirculate outrage um, at a rate um, far in excess of other content. Even if we don't feel personally outraged ourselves, we still will share the outrage bait because we know that um, it provides us with, you know, the dopamine hit that we get from getting likes and retweets and, you know, getting our tweets and stuff amplified. So there's all kinds of research about that, right? Academic research about how outrage bait works. Um, There's a great book that was written, um, gosh, I think uh, 2010 maybe called Outrage Media or the Outrage Industry. And it's about how Rush Limbaugh and talk radio basically created um, this whole new way of um, thinking about the media. And it used to be um, that media organizations would go for, you know, kind of a middle ground, that it was the least objectionable programming model that said, you know, we want to keep as many people as possible, you know, divide the pie evenly for audiences. And when that model was no longer viable, the outrage media um, became the better model for them. And that said that you could keep the most engaged audience by, keeping them outraged (laughs) and that you would instead go for a very narrow niche model and um, you would be as outrageous as possible in order to keep those people um, as engaged as possible. And that's essentially the media model that we have now widespread. Um, And it's very, very destructive. Um, But at the same time, it also, um, again, preys on the, the innate vulnerabilities that we all have. Um, And so it's, it's anti-democratic because you're not necessarily consenting um, to, to having your emotions played with the way that they are um, by outrage media. Um, But you can't fight it really. Uh, It's like something um, that, that appears to be outrageous is something that we have to attend to. Um, It's just how we're wired. Uh, but, know, but so in we, any case to answer I mean, your the, other question I mean,
0: before we get to, before we get to the answer of the other question which is the crux of it right yeah i just wanted to say that like this is something that uh, the left does to a degree this show is partially sponsored by raw store and we do a lot of they do a lot of stories of like you know look at what this this local official crazy thing that this local official said but really if you if you look at the right wing media there's nothing other than that. And it uh, so much of what you see on Fox, for example, is taking a small story, a small local story. Here, some overzealous, you know, high school administrator decided, oh, the Christmas creche was too religious. We got to get out, rid of that. And then it becomes, and, and then what they do is they nationalize that and make it part of a trend of people coming against you all the time. So it's like, sometimes I stop and I think about, people who watch Fox News all the time they live in a very scary world like if if that was an accurate reflection of the world where voter fraud is constant you know you can't there's never a fair shake the media is against you scientists are against you uh, pharmaceutical f- companies are trying to track you with chips or whatever and it's it's a terrifying world and like you know people are bringing in immigrants to try to like make white people disappear there's a genocide against white people it's a, it, it is terrifying so okay you write that there are three steps to weirdifying fascism disrupt critique and expose <laughs> let's talk about that
2: yeah um it is it is terrifying so my dad uh watches what i call the O fox max right he watches all three sort of them like networks <laughs> oh, simultaneously. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a thing. And it is a scary world. And I mean, I think of him and I think of other people, you know, I live in a very conservative part of a conservative state and I see them as victims of fascist rhetoric. Um, yes, and uh, I really don't think it's their fault, to be honest. If if I watched O Fox Max all day long, I would be terrified too. I would think, you know, terrible things about the world and um, about the opposition party. And that's the thing is that it's all based on us versus them. And that's, you know, how you set people in motion, um, you know, in a fascist worldview. But yeah, so let's talk about how to solve it. So if you understand that the goal is to normalize fascism, um, to normalize fascist thought, policy, action, and to to normalize fascist communication strategies. Um, And I liked your point about, you know, raw story or the left has some outrage bait as well, but it's asymmetric, as you say. Um, It it is the the thing on the right, whereas on the left, um, most liberals and moderates are not actually consuming outrage bait material that's produced by the left. They're still looking for a more mainstream news um, source. Whereas on the right, they actually expect the outrage bait. And a lot of the you know, sort of fallout from what happened with Fox News and um, the 2020 election uh, is really about their audience being so radicalized that they wouldn't accept the truth that Trump lost. And Fox having to respond to that by you know, trying to keep their audience by saying radical things yeah um but so yeah so we have to disrupt it you have to critique it um you know that's how you weirdify i um i think there's (laughs) again you know it's like you could talk about this for hours and hours but um you know you disrupt it by intervening in some way and and there's lots of different kinds of disruption strategies. I mean, you know, you could have a kind of passive resistance, you know, if that was appropriate. You could um, have a kind of carnivalesque uh, disruption strategy, um, which is something that you certainly see, um, I don't know, in the last few years as, as ways of people um, trying to disrupt, you know, sort of um, I don't know, like for example, um, when the white nationalists go on parade and you have like the tuba or the sousaphone guy walking alongside, playing, you know, like the the war march or whatever from <laughs> Star Wars. Oh, there was um, one,
0: just there was one just this week. So we're recording there? we're recording this on Thursday. On Tuesday there was a Nazi parade in Germany in Gera, Germany, as pro pro Russia. parade of neo-nazis and um somebody accompanied them just playing clown music
2: yeah i
0: love that i love that because they're trying to be intimidating
2: right they're trying to like show their force and they're so manly
0: there was a great example in north carolina a few years ago there was a a kkk rally and these clowns showed up and whenever they said white power They'd be like white flower and they'd throw flower in the air. And then they'd be like, white flowers, and they'd throw flowers and they'd be wife power. They were doing
2: <laughs> see, I love that. That yeah. those are just that's a weirdifying strategy, right? It made so, them and to- it made
0: them crazy. They became apoplectic and they retreated.
2: Right. That, because that what are effective. you gonna do? Like when you're like, you are absurd, and we will be more absurd than you are. I mean, that's that's it. I love that. Um, thank you for having all those examples ready. (laughs) Um, And so then, you know, once you can disrupt it and show like, hey, they're trying to normalize this idea that they're so powerful and like they see the world and it's us versus them and it's permanent warfare and, you know, the patriarchy or whatever. Like if you can disrupt that in some way, um, then you can critique it, right? Then you have that space to say like, this is how this is working. This is what the goals are. Um, And then to expose like, And this is the big picture. This is how like this moment in time where they're saying these things or doing this thing, this is how it fits this long-term agenda, this long-term strategy that actually disempowers you while they're trying to, you know, sort of rally you and tell you that you're all powerful, Um, right? Fascism is all about subservience. (laughs)
1: Like if
2: you are a victim of, you know, fascist rhetoric and you believe that it's us versus them um, you know, they have actually made you subservient to this larger project, right? Which is nationalism, which is um, male domination, whatever it is. Um, and and so they have actually disempowered you, whereas democracy is about empowering every individual, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, I really, I, I'm so fascinated by the relationship between communication and democracy. And, you know, likewise, the relationship between communication and authoritarianism or fascism um, and and constantly looking for ways to sort of help people understand how to communicate more democratically and like what that means.
0: I think it's so important. We did a show last week about um, how the war against quote, wokeness in schools and CRT is actually a cover for a very old project to undermine teachers unions and support for public education. Before I let you go, I wonder if you want, and maybe you don't want to weigh in on, I know you're you're not a pundit, but maybe you want to weigh in on some of the controversy surrounding the New York Times, almost obsessive coverage of transgender issues. Uh, Critics rightly say, I'm not going to say Critics say, because they're right, um, is that it, it it its coverage is slanted, it normalizes and amplifies exactly the kind of the kind of language we're talking about. It's a moral panic designed to make you feel that you're being threatened by somebody. Um, they one of their pieces referred to a trans child as patient zero, as if being <laughs> transgender is an illness. Uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, or more broadly, the press giving credibility to the claims that, you know, this is that we're under threats of a, of wokeness and college kids and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting, you know, again, thinking about the relationship of communication, and democracy um, and, and normalization, uh, because I think that, um, first of all, the fascist goal has always been or part of the fascist process has always been to sort of point the finger at the weirdos, at the weakest among us, you know, the people who um, are different and say, like, it's their fault. (laughs) Like all of, you know, the lot in life that we have told you is so terrible. We can blame it on these people, you know, and it's always the people who can't fight back, who don't have a lot of power. Um, And so I see that as what's been part of the trans panic, the anti-trans panic. Um, over the last couple of years. Uh, and at the same time, um, I think that there's so, it's so interesting and there's actually so much power itself in, in what transgender is. Um, that it's, it's an interesting like, like back and forth kind of moment because, you know, if you think about the fascist project as normalization, to say there is normal, we know what it is, we get to define it. Um, you know, it's heteronormative, it's masculinist, whatever, you know, the, the trans person says uh, normal isn't what you think it is. (laughs) And in fact, maybe there's no such thing as normal at all. Um, And, and so in a way, just the fact that a trans person exists, sort of gives the lie to the whole fascist game and the whole fascist narrative. Um, You know, so I, I don't know so much about the New York Times coverage, I haven't, I haven't read enough of it to have a really informed opinion. Um, but I do think that uh, the anti-trans panic is a fascist move and that part of the reason why transgender people are targeted is because of the essentialist threat of, um, you know, what a trans person is to the fascist agenda.
0: Professor Jennifer Mercia, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. I do appreciate that.
2: That's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Folks, follow uh, the professor's work on Resolute Square. That's square.com. I'd also like to thank Adam Van Dam and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Raw Story and Alternet for supporting the show. Uh, you can follow me on Mastodon. Jo- at Joshua Holland on Mastodon. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you, fine and discerning people, for tuning in. Have a terrific
1: week. If it keeps on.